O beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, plans are powerful tools. Imagine for a moment trying to to build a house without a plan, without a blueprint. We We would quickly lose focus. We would quickly lose perspective. Without a plan, we would grow weary. We would, we would give up. Without a plan, we would become confused and, and uncertain. But when we have and when we know the plan, everything changes. When we have and know the plan, we get direction, we get perspective, and we get clarity. Knowing the plan transforms our work. It, it transforms what we do and how we do it. We see the importance of of having and of knowing man-made plans. But how much more important and how much more life-transforming it is to have and to know God's plan. After all, that's, that's the plan that really matters. That's the plan that determines the future. That's the plan that is unalterable. But here's the problem. By nature, we are ignorant of God's plan, not just as creatures, because He is the Creator, but as sinners. By nature, we, even when we, we have that plan revealed to us, we can so often live as if, as if it isn't. How often don't you, don't you find that you lose focus and you lose perspective in life as a, as a Christian? Other things become more important to us than God and what He is doing. We look around at what goes on in the world around us, what goes on in our own lives, and we can become confused. We can become uncertain how, how to live as Christians in the midst of it all. We can become spiritually weary and hopeless. So this morning, congregation, we saw the Lord responding with abounding grace toward repentant sinners, both from God's Word and in the Lord's Supper. Many of you came, and hopefully, hopefully you were refreshed. Hopefully you were nourished and strengthened by God's grace. But now you have to go on. And maybe you wonder, how, how can I keep the struggles of life? How can I keep the busyness of life, the brokenness of the world, from sucking me back into self-preoccupation? back into to living with little regard for God? How, how can I live now more, more purposefully, more consistently for God? How can I, how can I live more to, to His glory, the glory of the God of such abounding grace? Maybe others of you came to the table and, and you're struggling now this evening because you didn't feel anything. Already the temptation to become wrapped up in yourself is, is sucking you, is, is pulling at you. Maybe that very struggle, a struggle of not feeling enough, feeling th- things enough, maybe that kept you from the table when you should have been there. Others of you, maybe whether you came to the table or not, are here and you have no concern for God. No concern for living, about living for Him. Maybe you go to church, maybe you go to catechism, but, but neither God nor God's plan factors into your everyday life. Well, whoever you are, 
And wherever you are at spiritually this evening, God comes to us in his word this afternoon and the words of Joel 2, verse 28 to 32. And he graciously reveals his sovereign plan. Notice how, once again, this is a gracious act of God. We've seen the Lord's gracious call to return to him in verses 12 to 17. We've seen the Lord's gracious response to repentant sinners in verses 18 to 27. And this afternoon, and now in our post-communion service, our theme is the Lord's gracious revelation of his sovereign plan. Gracious because it gives us direction, because it gives us perspective, because it gives us clarity. Gracious because blessed by the Spirit. This revelation of his plan changes everything. It transforms our lives. And so with God's help, we hope to consider the three life-transforming parts of God's plan revealed in our text. So first of all, his plan to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Secondly, his plan to execute judgment in the earth. And third, his plan to save all who call on him. Why do I refer, maybe you wonder, why, why do I refer to verses 28 to 32 as God's revelation of his sovereign plan? Isn't it part of, of God's response that we looked at this morning? Well, in a sense, yes, it is. It, it's still speaking to God's repentant people. But, but the first words of verse 28 indicate that a new section here is starting. The first words are, and it shall come to pass afterward. So in verses 18 to 27, God has been speaking to his repentant people. He's been assuring them of his present grace, his, his, his imminent grace that he's about to pour out on them in response to their repentance. But now here in verses 28 to 32, he tells them what he's going to do afterward, what he's going to do sometime in, in the more distant future. He tells them, the first thing he tells them, is that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. That's the focus of verses 28 and 29, where the Lord says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Now, if you know your Bibles, I, I'm guessing as many of you do, you probably read those verses and your mind immediately jumps to, to Acts chapter 2, to Pentecost. And rightly so, because Peter quotes this prophecy there and he says that what happened there in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came with, with that mighty rushing wind and with the dividing tongues of fire and came, that came and rested upon the people in that room, the 120 disciples, 120 uh, disciples, men and women. And, and when they began then filled, filled with the Spirit, when they began speaking in other languages, the wonderful works of God, all of that was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy here. And so we rightly think of Acts 2 when we read these verses. But our text this afternoon is not Acts 2, it's, it's Joel 2. And, and so the question as we, as we come to Scripture the question we always need to ask when we're reading Scripture is what, what was the significance of the, this text for those people? 
the people to whom it originally came? Why did God tell them that one day he would pour out his Holy Spirit upon all flesh? Well, we could maybe mention many things, but but there are two things this this promise, this prophecy would have made very clear to the people. The first is this. How valuable is the knowledge of God? How valuable is the knowledge of God? Why do I say that? Well, do you remember what one of the results would be of God's gracious response to his repented people? You look back one more verse, just one verse in verse 27. And God says there, And you shall know, shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God and none else. Through the grace God would show to his people, the people would would know their God. They would have fellowship and they would have communion with him. He would be in the midst of Israel. That's what God's grace and salvation is all about. That's what the Lord's Supper this morning was all about too, wasn't it? It was about that knowledge, that fellowship, that communion with the Lord. Yet, even though that that was one of the things promised to the people. How easy it is to become sidetracked by other things. How easy it is to become sidetracked thinking of ourselves now as we go into a new week by our work, by our stuff, by our, by our, our suffering perhaps. Yes, even by our material and physical blessings. That's the temptation that we face to become sidetracked, to become distracted. And, and that's a temptation the people in Joel's day would have faced too because they were no different from us. And, and so to show the people, to reinforce to them the importance, the necessity, and the value of knowing God, the Lord reveals to them, he, he gives them this promise. He says, one day, one day I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. He would cause, the Lord would cause the knowledge of God to spread. That's what the pouring out of the Spirit signifies. That's what the Lord is saying when he explains that with the pouring out of his Spirit, the sons and daughters of these people would prophesy. Their old men shall dream dreams and the young men shall see visions. I know we can have all kinds of questions when you read that. What, what, is, what is the relation of that today? Well, we're not going to talk about that now tonight. Because, but, but I want to, you to notice the main point. The role of prophecies and of dreams and of visions in the Old Testament wasn't as some people seem to think, even Christians, it wasn't merely or even primarily to foretell the future. The role of prophecy and of visions and of dreams was to make God known. That's how God spoke to the people. That's how he revealed himself in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament before The scriptures were completed. But relatively few people in the Old Testament prophesied. Relatively few people in the Old Testament had dreams and visions. The Spirit of God anointed relatively few people to make God known. But one day, God is saying to to these people in, in, in Joel's day, 
One day that will all change. One day I'm going to pour out my spirit in such abundance that your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the, on the lower classes, the people whom you view as in, insignificant, the servants and the handmaids. They're all going to make me known. The knowledge of me, God is saying, through the outpouring of my spirit is what my plan, what my sovereign plan for the future is all about. And so the lesson, the lesson for the people of God in, jo- in Joel's day was this. Don't despise the knowledge of God. Don't allow other things to distract you from knowing God. Because the knowledge of God is everything. It's worth everything. And beloved, that lesson is also true for us uh, all the more because we stand on this side of Pentecost. God fulfilled Joel's prophecy with the outpouring of the Spirit 10 days after Jesus ascended. And he is continuing to fulfill it even today. Every person who repents and believes in Jesus, as Peter declares in Acts 2, receives the empowering Spirit of God in order. Why? In order to make God known to those around us. But then what does that mean for our focus? How then should we live ourselves? Well, it means, doesn't it, that we should live in pursuit of the knowledge of God. We should seek, as Paul prayed for the Colossian church in Colossians 1 verse 19, we should seek to increase in the knowledge of God. How? By being in by being immersed in the Word of God, by being people of the book. To know God, congregation, to truly know Him, to have fellowship with Him is eternal life. That's, there is nothing more valuable than knowing God. That's the first lesson. Will you remember that? When you are tempted also this coming week to start to become sidetracked, distracted by everything else. But God's revelation of his plan to pour out his spirit doesn't just show us how valuable the knowledge of God is. It also makes clear how committed God is to revealing himself. The repetition of that phrase, I will pour out my spirit at the beginning and end of these verses makes very clear how strong his commitment is. God is saying to the people in Joel's day, I am committed to making myself known. I want you to know this. One day I'm going to pour out my spirit in such abundance so that I, may be, that I may be revealed to many, so that I may be known by many. The people in Joel's day, of course, didn't know when God would do that. But what they did know was that he would do it. And what they could conclude then from that that if, if, is this, that if God is committed to making himself known in such an abundant way in the future, if God is committed to empowering even our descendants, our sons and daughters with his spirit to make himself known, then we can trust his promise in verse 27. We can trust that he, the Lord, is in the midst of Israel today. And that he is and he will remain our God. 
God's revelation of his plan to pour out his spirit was meant in this way as a comfort, as an added reassurance to God's repentant people. And beloved, the fulfillment of this prophecy at Pentecost makes this comfort even greater for us. It means that we can trust God's promise to be with us. We can trust God's promise to be our faithful God, not just because he will make himself known, but because he has made himself known and he is making himself known. He is revealing himself. He is still today pouring out his spirits. And so as we go out into our weeks, into our work, and as we serve as witnesses to him as he calls us to be, as witnesses to his grace, we can trust his promise to fill us and to empower us with his spirit. Doesn't knowing God's plan renew your strength? Doesn't it give you direction and focus? But we also need to be reminded of the second part of God's plan, which he reveals in our text. His plan to execute judgment in the earth. We consider that now in our second point. His plan to execute judgment in the earth. In verses 30 and 31, God says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Congregation, these are solemn words. Words that make clear that this world, as we know it, is not going to continue forever. There is a day of judgment coming. God's judgment is certain. Perhaps you notice that phrase at the end of verse 31, the day of the Lord. Joel mentioned this day earlier in his prophecy. In Joel 1 verse 15, in Joel 2 verse 1, and in Joel 2 verse 11. In those verses, it is a day, the day of the Lord is a day near at hand. It was a day that was about to to dawn, about to break out on, on specifically on Judah And on Jerusalem because of their sin. And it it very clearly there refers then to to God's judgment. Joel describes it there just as he does here as a a great and a very terrible day. In chapter 2 verse 11. Who can abide it? Who can endure it? But God, as we saw last week in his grace, he, he called the people to repentance. And the Lord made clear to him that when they repented, the judgment of God would not fall on them. And so the coming of that day of the Lord wasn't certain. But here in our text this evening it is. The final day of the Lord is part of God's sovereign plan. You notice that again, there's that I will. It's unalterable. And the wonders that God will show, the blood and the fire and the pillars of smoke make clear that this day will be a day of judgment. God's judgment is certain, congregation. And that's not just an Old Testament teaching. That's a New Testament teaching. The New Testament reminds us of this again and again. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed. I believe the Lord Jesus is going to come again as as judge to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. Even the Lord's Supper this morning reminds us of that because Paul tells the Corinthians that every time they celebrate the Lord's Supper, as often as they they eat this bread and drink this cup, they show the Lord's death till what? 
till He comes. Till He comes as judge, to, to judge the living and the dead. The point is, God's judgment is certain. Why did God want the people in Joel's day to know that? Why does he want us to know that? Wasn't it and, and isn't it to keep us from abusing the grace of God? How, how easy it could have been for those people and how easy it can be for us, how tempting it can be to use God's superabounding grace as an excuse for sin. But God reveals the certainty of his judgment to sober us, to make us realize how serious sin is so that we don't become careless. But these verses teach us not only that God's judgment is certain, they also teach us that God's judgment is universal. The Lord says that he will show wonders in the heavens and the earth. And in the next verse, he speaks of the sun being turned into darkness and the moon into blood. The heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon, those are terms that indicate how universal God's judgment will be. You won't be able to miss it. The judgment and the destruction that God's judgment would bring will be worldwide. Well, what's the lesson there? The lesson both for the people to whom Joel was speaking and for us is this. Don't set your heart. Don't set your heart on earthly things. How tempting that could have been for the people too. God had just promised, didn't he, to give them so many earthly blessings. He promised to give them so much grain and wine and oil they would hardly know what to do with it all. Something to be thankful for, for sure. But something that if they weren't careful could easily ensnare them. Something that their hearts could easily latch onto instead of onto God. And isn't that such a danger for us as well, congregation? We live in one of the most prosperous places in the world and one of the most prosperous times in history. And we need that reminder that none of the material things we have, the houses, the cars, the crops, the barns, none of it will last. God's judgment is universal. It's cosmic. So don't set your affections on things below, but set them on things above where Christ is, where the one whom you communed with at the table is seated at the right hand of God. Do you see how knowing God's plan of judgment is so helpful for us in the Christian life? But there's one more thing about God's judgment here that our text calls attention to. It's not just certain, and it won't just be universal. It will be dreadful. Blood Fire, pillars of smoke. It's not a peaceful picture. It's a picture of destruction. It's a picture of carnage. The day of the Lord is a great and a terrible or dreadful day. If you would, I would like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. Because in, these, in that chapter, 
Peter describes the day of the Lord in similar terms. And he also applies it. And so we'll let his conclusion then be the application of this point. Second Peter 3, we'll read verses 10 to 14. Where Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Do you see with me how, how the dreadfulness of the day of the Lord is, is a call. It, it's a call to us to, to forsake sin, to, to live holy unto the Lord. Knowing that also for all who are in Christ that the destruction of, of this world will not be the end because there will be a new heavens and a new earth for all who are looking to Him in faith. Do you see how this gives us a proper perspective for life? an eternal perspective, how it shows us the importance of holiness. But it also, this day of the Lord also shows us more. It shows us our absolute need of deliverance. It shows us our absolute need of a Savior who can and who is most willing to deliver us from our sin. And praise God, praise God, He also reveals His plan to save and deliver all who call on him. And this is our third and, and last point. The Lord will save all who call on him. We see this in the very last verse of Joel 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. A congregation, I want you to notice how full of hope, how full of hope this revelation is. Right on the heels of announcing the certainty and the universal scope of God's dreadful judgment, the Lord announces that He has a plan to save. And He proclaims that salvation not to some people only, not to the Jews only, not to a few nations here and there, but to whoever calls on the name of the Lord. And that's why when you go to the New Testament, this verse becomes such, a, such an important verse. You, you see it in, in Peter's Acts 2 sermon. That's why Peter then calls all the Jews who were gathered together from different nations at Pentecost who became, in, uh, who became convicted of their sin as they heard Peter preaching about Jesus Christ and they asked him what they should do. He calls them to repent, to turn to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul also quotes this verse in Romans 10, verse 13. Right after saying, he, in, in the verse before, he says, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. 
or the Jew and the Gentile, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. He says, and who, therefore whoever believes, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So full of hope. Beloved, if you are here tonight and if, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to know that you will have to face him in judgment one day. And it will be dreadful. It will be dreadful to stand before the judgment seat of Christ having never trusted, never called upon his name. But God comes tonight in his word. It is not the day of the Lord, the day of judgment yet. It is a day of grace. And so he comes in his word and he reveals his sovereign plan, a plan that makes clear that his judgment is certain. His judgment will be universal. His judgment, yes, will be dreadful, but a plan that makes clear as well. There is deliverance. There is an escape from that judgment for all who call, for whoever who calls on the name of the Lord. For whoever turns to him, for whoever casts themselves on him in dependence on him. And that Lord, that Lord on whom we must call and on whom we may call is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are here tonight and you are unconverted, younger, older. Christ is your hope. Christ is your only hope. So call on him, turn to him, trust in him, throw yourself on him, and you have his word. You have his word. You will be delivered. You will be saved. And oh, what joy and confidence this gives, doesn't it? to all who have called on him, to all you who have turned to the Lord Jesus in faith. It would have given joy and confidence. This, this word of God in, in, in Joel 2, verse 32, would have given joy and confidence to the people in Joel's day who had, call, who had called on him in response to his call in that, that we looked at earlier, who had turned to him in repentance and faith because this God in verse 32 that was promising such glorious deliverance was their God. And so as he would be faithful to this promise in verse 32, he, they could know, they had confidence that he would be faithful in delivering them. That's why, dear believer, that's why the day of the Lord, yes, it should sober us, but it doesn't need to terrify us. Because you have been and you will be delivered. When Paul speaks of the day of the Lord in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he talks not only about how it should sober us, but in, in verses 9 to 11 of that book, he, of, of that chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, he comforts the believers. He reminds them, as he says, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even also as ye do. 
The revelation of God's plan to save all who call on him is so full of hope, not only for ourselves, congregation, not only for those who have trusted in Jesus, but also for those around us. Have you ever thought of that? It's so easy, it's so easy to become focused on ourselves. But the hope of deliverance in our text is not just for ourselves, it's for whoever. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. And so what's the application to us? Doesn't it call us, especially, especially seeing that we live on this side of Pentecost, that we who believe in Jesus Christ have the Spirit of God and, and that He comes and can empower us to be His witnesses. Doesn't it call us and encourage us who have called on God, who have trusted in Jesus to be diligent, to be diligent in telling others about Him? How are you doing in that? How am I doing in that? Do the people around you, do the people around you know about the Lord whom you love? Let's not think anybody is beyond hope. No, but let us, according to God's word and in confidence, dependence on the Spirit, seek to be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. Let us pray for opportunities and seek opportunities to tell others about the only Savior from sin and from death and from hell. If God's plan, congregation, is to save all who call on Him, then let's make sure, let's make sure that they all know about him. God's revelation of his plan to save gives hope. But it also reminds us that all the glory for God's salvation, for God's deliverance, goes to God alone. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, as the Lord has said, It's all according to his will. And, and even our calling on the Lord isn't something we do on our own, by our own free will, so to speak. It's something that the Lord, by grace, works in us by his sovereign and gracious call, the call that by his Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and brings us to our knees so that we cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, you see, gets all the honor and all the glory. Congregation, that's how we're to live. Going forward into this week, having been able to, to be at the Lord's table, to witness and, and to partake of the bread and the wine. That's how we are to go. Giving God all the honor and glory for His salvation. Yes, also for the strengthening of faith, of our faith, through His Holy Supper. So we know God's plan. God has revealed it to us to equip us, to sanctify us, to transform us, to lead us in his ways. His plan gives direction, it gives perspective, it gives clarity. So what will you do with God's plan? If you live according to his plan, if you embrace his plan so that you call on the Lord Trusting in Him, do you know where that plan will ultimately lead you? It will take you to Mount Zion. It will take you all the way 
to Jerusalem, that heavenly Jerusalem, where there shall be full deliverance, where there shall be full salvation, no more sin, no more sorrow, where there shall be only unimaginable glory and beauty, and where there shall be the one whom your soul loves, Jesus. To him be all the glory. Amen.